Andrew Womack Ministries presents this session from the 2014 Phoenix Gospel Truth Seminar. We pray that the Word of God will come alive in your heart as you listen. Praise God. You can be seated. You know, when you're talking about standing in the power of Christ, if you've listened this week, you should have a greater understanding of what that means. That he redeemed us from this performance-based type of relationship. He has set us free. He paid the price that we couldn't pay. So standing in Christ means that you aren't depending upon your own self. You aren't susceptible to Satan's condemnation because he, Jesus has borne it all. He's already paid for everything. And, and it's a shame how many people have just taken these things and they use cliches, but they really don't understand what it's talking about. But that's just a powerful song. The truths that it's expressing are awesome, but you've got to understand the gospel to really benefit from it. Let's turn back over to Galatians. I've been teaching through the book of Galatians and we're now up to Galatians chapter five. I'm probably not gonna to totally finish the thing, but maybe I can make it through Galatians chapter five tonight. It starts in verse one, Galatians chapter five, verse one says, stand fast therefore. The word therefore means you're supposed to look and see what it's there for. It's dependent upon all of the other things that have been said. And of course, I can't go back and summarize all of this, but just the last few verses had been talking about uh, Ishmael and Isaac, that Isaac was the son of promise. He was the one that God supernaturally supplied to Abraham. Ishmael was Abraham and Sarah's own attempt to try and make God's promises come to pass. And it was compared to, it says it was an allegory that Ishmael is like the law, Isaac was like this new covenant, the uh, son of promise. And we are no longer supposed to be living like that uh, uh, son that came through the flesh. As uh, Creflo said, you need to kick out Hagar and her son, amen. They cannot live with the free son. And we are supposed to be living under the new covenant. So that's the context of what he had just been talking about. And because of those things, stand fast. The word stand fast is like a military term to be on guard, to fight and protect. You know, I was talking to a Virginia Croy. I mentioned her the other night and had her stand up. And man, she's been gloriously set free from a terrible, terrible legalistic bondage and cult. I mean, it was just, it's a great testimony. And yet she was sharing with me today that, uh, you know, she had fallen back in some ways. She had gotten back into not realizing some of these things. And, and the reason I bring that up is to say that you don't ever just get a revelation of the grace of God and it's done. It's over with. It's like there is this constant pull, like gravity that is always there. And the moment you cut off the power, the moment you quit meditating and growing in the gospel of grace, I guarantee you this legalism is going to pull you down. It's just prevalent. It's everywhere. In the secular world, nobody deals with you by grace. Everything is performance-based. In marriage, it's performance-based. It shouldn't be, but it is. I couldn't tell you how many people I've counseled when I was pastoring churches that would say, he did this, and I'd say, well, the Bible says you're supposed to love your wife as Christ loved the church. Well, I know, but, and then they would relate something that they did. 
And the truth is, most people don't operate in love. They don't love their mate as Christ loved the church to where you give your life and, and lay down your life even when they were still sinners. Christ commended his love toward us. Even if your mate isn't doing what they should be, you should still be loving them. Very few marriages are established on grace. So marriages in the large part operate on performance. We deal with our kids based on performance. They come in and say, hey, now I've said my ABCs, tell me what you think of me. And you say, oh, we're so proud and we honor them. And then when they mess up, we punish them. And I'm not saying that you aren't supposed to do those things, but I'm saying that the whole world is performance-based and then the church is legalistic to the max. If you aren't condemned before you come to church, you usually are condemned after you leave church. And uh, so there just isn't a role model for grace. And if, unless you are actively standing fast and fighting for this, you will lose these truths. That's amazing but some of you have been touched, some of you have been blessed. You've experienced a freedom over the last few days hearing all of this teaching on the gospel of grace and you've been blessed and so you just go home and think, well, everything will be different. It's not gonna be different unless you stand fast. You have to fight for this. Nobody's gonna minister grace to you other than the Holy Spirit. Amen. So he says, stand fast. Therefore, because of all of this, in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free. You've been called unto liberty. Jesus brought you into liberty, not into bondage. Did you know that the word religion, if you study it out and trace it back through all of the words, the origin, it literally means to bind is what the word religion means. It's to bind. It's not liberty, it's bondage. It causes you to be restricted and stuff. And you have to stand fast in this liberty that Christ hath made us free and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. This is referring to the law. The law is a yoke of bondage. You compare this with Matthew chapter 11, I believe it's around verse 29 where Jesus said, take my yoke upon you and learn of me for I am meek and lowly in heart and you shall find rest unto your soul. My yoke is easy, my burden is light. Jesus didn't come to give you a yoke of bondage. This is one of the reasons that there's so many people today who are not participating in church. Not because they doubt that there's a God, but it's just bondage, it's just criticism. You know, I've often made this comparison that you know the Super Bowl's coming up and they have these commercials and everybody wants to see all of the commercials. And I mean, the commercials are a big deal. They sell for three, four million dollars for 30 seconds and stuff. And did you know the, these commercials, they'll advertise beer. And instead of showing you a person laying in the gutter that's puked all over himself and lost his family and has lost everything. They'll show you these beautiful Clydesdales going through the snow and nice music and stuff. What does that have to do with beer? <laughs> but you know what the logic is? If they were to show you a drunk laying in the gutter and that he had lost everything and lost his family and he's lost his health, and he's dying. If that's what you associated their beer with, you wouldn't drink it. You associate with these neat things. 
And but sadly, when you go to church, man, most people associate God with wrath and condemnation and God's gonna get you and that God's upset at you and they just get beat up. I've had people come up to me before and say, man, I just don't feel like I've been to church unless I had my toes stepped on. We've been conditioned to think that, man, that's a good message when you really got on my case. Only religion could do that to you. But after a while, there's millions of people in the United States and all over the world that they don't doubt that there's a God, but they don't want much to do with him. They do just enough to make sure that they think their eternity is taken care of and to appease him so that he won't mess their life up, but they don't want to get close to him. He's liable to put cancer on them to be a blessing. <laughs> they just get beat up. It's a yoke of bondage. And brothers and sisters, like Creflo was saying to this morning, we, America hasn't heard the gospel. America hasn't heard the gospel. The gospel is the power of God, but America hadn't heard the gospel. You'll hear people say that they have, but what they've heard is religion. They've heard all of this wrath and rejection. We need to fight for the gospel. We need to stand fast in this liberty and don't go back to bondage. You know, there are good churches out there. I am not against the church. We got uh, uh, Larry and Donna Hodge here that are our pastor's relations people. And we have a table out there. As a matter of fact, I should have mentioned this. But if any of you are looking for a church in this area, we have a list of all of the pastors that have come to these meetings, the pastors that have written in to us. And we supply that list to people who are looking for a good church. We can't guarantee that every pastor that comes to this meeting is going to have a good church that preaches the gospel, but that's a place to start looking, amen. At least they came to the meeting. And so we encourage people to be in church. I am not against the church, but there's a lot of churches that aren't preaching the gospel. And many of you go to them. And you've been going to them, your grandparents have their plaque on one of the pews. And you're just going to stay there. It doesn't matter what happens. And you're giving your money into that thing and helping this thing to propagate bondage instead of liberty. And then you come to a meeting like this and you're trying to bootleg the gospel off of Creflo and me. <laughs> I'm telling you, you shouldn't be living that way. You ought to find a good church and you ought to get in it. It doesn't have to be a perfect church but it needs to be one that's preaching the gospel. And I tell you, there's a lot of church, I'd say the majority of churches are doing as much or more harm than they're doing good. You need to, you need to stand fast and fight for this and don't enter back in to this yoke of bondage. He says in verse two, behold, I, Paul, say unto you that if you be circumcised, Christ shall profit you nothing. That is one radical statement. In Philippians chapter three, verse five, Paul himself said he was circumcised the eighth day. So Paul wasn't preaching against circumcision. What he's doing is preaching against trusting in you fulfilling the rituals, the commands to be in right standing with God. Today, circumcision isn't the issue, but you could say the same thing. If you go to church, Christ will profit you nothing. If you think that by going to church, this is somehow or another giving you rights to the things of God. You are earning it by your church attendance. If you pray, Christ will profit you nothing if you are trusting in your prayers. I know the things I'm saying are radical, but this is not near as radical as what Paul said 
to the religious people of his day. Circumcision, according to uh, Genesis chapter 17, was something that you had to do, and if you didn't do it, you had to be put to death. It was non-negotiable. And I tell you, this was radical for him to say that if you are trusting in this circumcision, if you're trusting in your act, you, Christ, profits you nothing. You have just voided Christ. And if you are trusting in all of your religious actions, even if they're good religious actions, going to church is good, praying is good, studying the word is good, but if you are doing these things, thinking that this somehow or another obligates God to move, you're wrong. Did you know that the average person, when you fast, the reason most Christians fast is because you've prayed, God didn't answer your prayer. You've asked other people, the prayer chain is prayed, God hadn't answered that, so you're gonna put pressure on God and you're gonna fast. And whatever his problem is with you, surely he's not gonna let you die. (laughs) Right before you die, he's gonna come through. Whatever it is, it's kept un merciful God from moving, he will certainly have mercy as you're wasting away and about to die and you are trying to somehow or another twist God's arm and put pressure on him. It's like in the Old Testament, they would go in and grab hold of the horns of the altar and try and plead with God. Man, people are putting, grabbing hold of the horns of the altar and trying to shake it until God comes out. Did you know that the way prayer is done, the majority of prayer and intercession that is taught today, it is us putting pressure on God and trying to make God do something. Don't look at me in that tone of voice. (laughs) I know some of you are thinking, boy, you are really off base. I guarantee you this is the way that people responded to Paul when he talked about circumcision, but this is what he's talking about. It's not just circumcision. It's trusting in all of these things. There's nothing wrong with being circumcised. There's nothing wrong going to church. There's nothing wrong with praying. But if you are trusting that somehow or another you are forcing God to do something, God is gonna respond to you, then Christ profits you nothing. You know, when I first got turned on to the Lord, I was exposed to all of the revivals and I heard about the New Hebrides revival. I heard... Duncan Campbell speak, the guy who preached the New Hebrides revival. He was an old, old man back in the 60s. And I went and heard him and he talked about the things and man, I got a hunger for revival and I started all night prayer meetings where we were gonna pray and make God move and we were gonna force things. And these all night prayer meetings never lasted past 11 (laughs) o'clock. The people would leave and I'd be there by myself. But I I used to pray and plead with God, oh God, don't pour out your wrath on America. Oh God, send revival. And I actually heard myself pray this one time. I was praying and I was screaming and hitting the wall and oh God, move and oh God, come and oh God, do something. And uh, I heard this come out of my mouth. I said, God, if you love the people of Arlington, Texas, half as much as I do, we'd have revival. (laughs) And when I said that, I thought something's wrong with this picture. (laughs) But see, this is the way, this is the way it was modeled to me and it's what I did. We were praying and begging God to do something. 
I had a woman come to me one time and she says, I've been praying for my husband for 20 years and he's a reprobate and nothing's changed, but maybe God would hear you if you would pray. Would you pray for my husband? And I said, no, I'm not gonna pray for your husband, not the way you're praying. And she just looked at me like, what are you saying? I said, you're implying that God, it's up to God whether your husband gets saved or not. And you've been praying and he hasn't responded to you, so you think maybe I can have more pull with him. I said, man, your whole concept of God and the way he moves is wrong. God wants your husband saved more than you want him saved. You don't have to beg God to save people. You don't have to plead with God to send revival. You know, I hadn't got time to explain this. I know I'm gonna just mess up somebody's theology and stuff, but I pray that you hear my heart and don't reject everything I've got to say. But praying for a revival, the way that it's done is useless. Let me just put it to you this way. They've been praying for revival for 30 and 40 years. How's that working? Begging God as if God is up there and he could just send revival. He could just make people get born again and all of these things. If we would just plead with him, if we could get another million people to pray and pray at the same time or pray so that it's 24 hours a day that we never let him off the hook. We just keep pressure on him. And if we could just get more people to pray, then God would send revival. That whole concept is faulty because it's implying that God is up there with his arms folded saying, no, I'm not gonna pour out my spirit. No, I won't touch people because they've ticked me off and until you humble yourself, until you wallow in the dirt more, until you grovel in the dirt, I'm not gonna move. That's not the way that God is. God's got his arms open. He's trying to pour out his spirit. And I know that's offensive to some people because you say, well, God, there's something that God wants to do that he can't do? Yes, because he has to flow through us. The reason we don't see revival today isn't because we haven't begged God enough for it. It's because nobody's taken the gospel, which is the power of God. We've been preaching religion and condemning people and wondering why they aren't running to church to find out how terrible they are. But if you would preach the gospel, if you would go out and believe God, and these signs will follow you. The sick will be healed and all of these miracles will happen. You start seeing people raised from the dead and just like that woman in Uganda, grace, you will have all of the revival you can handle. You go out and see a few people raised from the dead in Phoenix and you'll have revival. Go out and start seeing blind eyes open. Go out and start seeing people set free by the love of God and I guarantee you revival will happen. Revival doesn't come by prayer. And I know that that's really offensive to a lot of people, but I'm telling you, it's not the way it works. It comes by people. Well, I'm, prayer could be involved in you opening your heart up and getting a revelation of the grace of God, but you get on fire for God and the world will come watch you burn. Amen, that's the way that it works. You don't have to plead with God to pour out his spirit. God's pleading with you to go do something. In the Old Testament, Elijah, Elisha took the mantle of Elijah and wrapped it together and Elijah had just split the Jordan River and walked across on dry ground and then he was caught up into heaven. And so Elisha took the mantle that fell down and he wrapped it together and he smote the waters and he says, where is the Lord God of Elijah? That was the Old Testament. He was trying to get God to manifest his power. 
But in the New Testament, God is saying, where are the Elijahs of God? It's not where is the God of Elijahs. Where is the Elijahs of God? Where's somebody that'll stand up and believe and go out and do it? They'll pray and say, oh God, rend the heavens and come down, send revival. That's a quotation from Isaiah chapter 64. But in the New Testament, God rent the heavens and came down through Jesus. It's wrong for you to pray that Old Testament prayer. It's wrong for you to plead and say, oh God, have mercy on America and don't judge America. God has placed all of America's judgment on Jesus and he is not judging America. This does not mean that America is safe because we are in the process of destroying ourselves. It says in Jonah chapter two, verse eight, I believe it is, Jonah in the belly of the well said, he came to a revelation, he had an epiphany. And he said, those that observe lying vanities forsake their own mercies. I guarantee you, America is observing lying vanities. We're calling evil good and good evil. And we are in the process of destroying ourselves. So I'm not saying that America is safe and that America doesn't need to turn back to God. I'm just saying that it's not up to God to just sovereignly pour out his spirit. He's put his power on the inside of us. And if we would arm ourselves with the gospel and go out and preach the true gospel with signs and wonders accompanying, we could see a revival, but it's dependent upon us believing God and doing it. We've got to start praying correctly. Amen. I got off on all of that by saying that if you are praying and begging God to pour out his spirit, begging God to save your mate, begging God to heal you, to deliver you, and you are trusting that somehow or another you have put pressure on God and now you've done this and God's got to move, Christ will profit you nothing. Prayer is not something you do to get God to respond. Prayer, biblical prayer, should be your response to what God has already done. And the way people are praying is making Christ of no effect. The way people are going to church thinking that this gives them some right because they've paid their dues and now God can move in their life. That makes Christ of no effect. The way many people pay their tithes, I was talking about that earlier, if you do it out of debt and out of obligation, according to Malachi chapter three, verse eight through 10, that you've robbed God, there's a curse on you and so you're gonna pay God off so that the curse can be removed. That was Old Testament. Under the New Testament, the motivation is give as you purpose in your heart, not grudgingly and of necessity. If you give grudgingly, then Christ profits you nothing. Your giving profits you nothing. Paul said that circumcision, if you're circumcised, it profits you nothing, and yet he was circumcised. It's not the circumcision, it's not the action that's wrong, it's the heart attitude. Do you think that you are somehow or another making God move by the things that you do? Do you read the Bible so that now, you, you know, it's like you read so many scriptures, so many chapters, God gives you a star and you get so many stars accumulated, you can cash them in for one answered prayer. <laughs> That's the mindset that people have. That profits you nothing. You know, I've got a Bible reading program and many, most of the years I read through this Bible reading program. I'll read the Bible one or two times a year plus I study other things. And 
if you miss a day, like sometimes I travel, I left New Zealand, uh, I don't know, sometime last fall, and I left New Zealand and arrived in Denver two hours before I left. <laughs> you know what, that'll mess with your mind. I don't even know how this works. But you can travel and you can miss a day reading your Bible. And so if you're having to read like eight chapters a day, you miss two days, you gotta read 16 chapters to catch up and then another eight chapters to be able. And so anyway, I found myself behind and I started reading the Bible. And I, I kind of go through this thing when I opened up the Bible. I don't always say it out loud, but I'm saying, Father, I want you to speak to me. And so I started reading the scriptures and on the very first verse, God showed me some stuff that I hadn't seen before. And man, I was beginning to really receive and I just kind of sat back and I was thinking and meditating on this and God was showing me things. And then I snapped to and I said, man, I got another 20 chapters to read. And I shelved that thought and I went back to reading. And I was only a few verses into it and the Lord spoke to me and he says, what are you doing? I said, well, I'm reading the word. And he says, why do you read the word? So you could speak to me. And then he didn't say anything else. And I got, I got to thinking about this. And you know, here I was asking God to speak to me. He starts speaking to me and I say, God, I got eight more chapters to read. Don't interrupt my Bible study. How dare you talk to me while I'm reading the word? That's useless. It profits you nothing. You'd be better off to not even have a Bible reading plan if it keeps you from hearing the voice of God. Man, this is an amazing statement. To the Jews of Paul's day, this was just, I'm sure that they thought he was a heretic. How could anybody say something like this. In verse three, he says, for I testify again to every man that is circumcised that he is a debtor to do the whole law. Notice the word again. This is the same thing he had said in the third chapter when he says, don't you hear that the law says, cursed is everyone that continueth not in all things to do them. It's not you do the best you can and if you come close, God will make it up. You gotta be perfect. The law doesn't give any room for failure. And since all of us have sinned, all of us are human, you can't live by the law, is what he's saying. And he says, for every man that is circumcised that you are a debtor to do the whole law. And again, it's not the action, it's those of you who are trusting in what you've done, your compliance with all of these commands. If you are trusting in the things that you have done, you are a debtor. You're in debt to the whole law. You'll never pay it. You can never do it. You need to come out from under that stuff. In verse four, Christ is become of no effect unto you. Whosoever of you are justified by the law, you are fallen from grace. Now see here, he's using in context, he's talking about circumcision, but here's the real issue. Those of you who are trying to be justified by the law. It's not the things you do, it's the attitude. If you do this to make God move, then Christ is become of no effect unto you. You are fallen from grace. What a radical, radical statement. 
This is not talking about that you are backslid, that you've lost your salvation the way that many people interpret this. This just means that you are no longer walking by grace. You aren't operating in the gospel. You have gone back into legalism. You've taken this yoke of bondage back upon you and you are making Christ of no effect. Man, that is a huge statement. Jesus, what he did is awesome. It is the greatest thing that has ever happened in the world and yet you can totally void what Jesus has done in your life by your attitude. Even doing the right things for the wrong reasons makes Christ of no effect. And brothers and sisters, I meet people, I have people come to me by the hundreds who are born again and according to the word, they have already been healed, they've already been delivered, they're already prospered, they're blessed with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, Ephesians 1, 3. They've already got this and yet in their life there is no effect. They're sick, they're poor, they're fearful. I meet Christians that if you were to meet them on the street and arrest them, there wouldn't be enough evidence to convict them of being a Christian. They're just as miserable, they're as fearful. There's people that when tragedy happens, when 9-11 happened, I meant Christians who said, I'll never fly again. They were in total terror. And the Bible says, man, that you know, we should not fear anything. Even if the mountains and the hills be removed, I'll still trust in the Lord because God's word is more sure than that. And yet there were Christians. There's probably Christians in here that were just petrified at 9-11. Y2K, Christians bought into this big time and operated in fear and entered into this stuff. You know why? It's Christ was of no effect. They didn't understand the gospel. They didn't understand how much God loved them and he was gonna take care of them. And they just, they, they are tossed and carried about with every wind of doctrine, just like the people that don't even know God. There are people sitting in this room right now that you are as sick, you're probably sicker than your friends and neighbors that aren't even born again. And yet Jesus purchased healing for you and there's just no effect in your life. There's some of you in here that can't get up without a pill, can't go to bed without a pill. I'm not condemning you. I'm not trying to say you're a terrible person. I'm saying that Christ is not releasing his effect in your life. And it's not because God turned off the spigot. It's because you are operating in legalism and you have come under this thing that you have to earn and deserve the things of God. And even though in your spirit, you've got the same power that raised Christ from the dead. It's got to get through your mind before it can touch your body and your circumstances. And there are many of you that just have no effect of Christ in your life and you wonder what it is and you think the answer is to go to some minister and have them wave their hand over you and they'll get you healed. The answer is for you to get your mind renewed. I had a woman down here that wanted me to pray over her. I won't give all the specifics, but I, I kept telling her, I said, you need to know the truth. You need to go get this teaching that I've got. And she says, well, would you please pray for me? I said, you don't need prayer. You need the truth. It's the truth that sets you free. And two or three times she asked me to pray. And it's not that I don't want to pray and help people, but I'm telling you, it's not prayer that's going to set you free. It's the truth that sets you free. And it's only the truth you know that sets you free. 
John chapter eight, verse 32, you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. It's only the truth you know that sets you free. And people have not known the truth of the gospel. And so Christ is become of no effect under the vast majority of Christians because they aren't operating under the grace of God, they're operating under law. You know, when you are truly focused on the grace of God, joy is a immediate result. Depression would be totally gone. Any person who's struggling with depression and just discouragement and things don't look right, I can guarantee you, you aren't focused on what Jesus has done for you. Because I don't care how bad things get in this life, your future is so bright you gotta squint to look at it. You're gonna spend eternity in heaven and if you were focused on what Jesus has done, it doesn't matter if you were living on the street. Man, praise God it's in Phoenix. You aren't up here where the deep freeze is. You could be praising God for that. I'm telling you, if you were to understand the grace of God, you would be praising God. Depression, discouragement would be gone. A merry heart does good like a medicine. You would be healthier if you were to be praising God. But when you get into all of this work stuff and it focuses your attention upon yourself, you make Christ of no effect. You are fallen from grace. That's amazing. And brothers and sisters, I take no pleasure in it, but this is where the vast majority of the body of Christ lives. This is as pertinent to us today as it was the day that Paul wrote it. We need a gospel revolution. Amen. In verse five, it says, for we through the spirit wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. We don't wait for righteousness. We are made righteous already. There's many scriptures that talk about that. But the hope of righteousness is talking about that someday we're gonna get a glorified body. We'll be changed and we'll live forever in eternity. That's still future. That's still hope. And we are waiting for that by faith, not by our own goodness and actions. In verse six, for in Jesus Christ, neither circumcision availeth anything nor uncircumcision, but faith which worketh by love. Faith in Christ, faith in this new covenant is the only thing that avails anything and faith works by love. You know, this is one of the things, I'm a part of the faith movement. I mean, I hate to identify with any one thing, but I was raised around all of the faith teaching and all of the faith movement, and I've benefited from it greatly. I don't re renounce that or recount it or any, recant it or anything like that, but I'm saying many people didn't mix the faith and all of these things that we were taught with love, and it just became a legalistic thing. Faith in an extreme is legalism. Grace in an extreme is lasciviousness. You've got to balance these two things together. And faith works by love. If you understand the grace of God and the tremendous price that Jesus paid for us, it will make you love God so much that faith won't even be a problem. Faith is really not the issue. It's the fact that we don't understand how much Jesus has done and we don't understand that it's not based on our effort, it's based totally upon what he's done and we are the ones that have weakened faith in our life by tying it to our goodness and thinking that God is gonna move according to our adherence to the law. 
Man, faith works by love in, and faith in this new covenant. In verse seven, it says, you didn't run well. Who did hinder you that you should not obey the truth? Paul had brought the gospel to them and they started out great. They received the gospel, but then these legalistic Jews came in and started telling them, Jesus isn't all areas. You've also got to keep all of these things. And it's the same thing with us. Most of you, when you got born again, if you truly encountered the Lord, you immediately experienced this freedom and liberty. I've heard people before describe it as the grass was greener, the sky was bluer, the smells were better, that man, you just fell in love with God. It was awesome. And then you went to church <laughs> and began to find out all of the things that you had to do to please God and you were talked out of it. But you know what? You started off in the spirit and you ought to just continue in that same liberty. That's what he's talking about right here. In verse eight, this persuasion cometh not of him that calleth you. A little leaven leaveneth the whole lump. Often leaven is used to describe sin, like over in 1 Corinthians chapter five. But here it's used to describe the law. A little leaven, yeast, will leaven the whole lump. You don't have to put a lot of yeast in a, in a dough in order to get the whole thing to rise. And a little bit of legalism will go a long ways. A little bit of legalism will counter a lot of grace. You cannot compromise on this issue. You cannot. There are some of you sitting in churches and you think you're gonna change that church. I'm telling you, you aren't gonna do it. I've pastored three churches and it takes a miracle for the pastor to change the church. You as a member of that church aren't gonna change that church and you sitting under this legalism is not gonna help you, it's gonna hurt you. Well, you need to get as strong as Paul was over in the beginning of this book talking about if anybody, even an angel, preaches something different than this, let him be accursed. You are not gonna tolerate unbelief. You aren't gonna tolerate the law because it's like leaven and it'll come in and it'll corrupt the grace of God that has been revealed unto you. And so, uh, what verse was that? Verse nine, verse 10, it says, I have confidence in you through the Lord that you will be none otherwise minded, but he that troubleth you shall bear his own judgment, whosoever he be. The people that were troubling these Galatians were people who were bringing in the law and preaching judgment and condemnation and saying, no, you don't deserve this. You're gonna get what you deserve. God's gonna deal with you based on your performance. And Paul says, Whoever is teaching you this is gonna bear his own judgment. Whosoever he be, he's gonna reap what he sows. And this is something that I've learned over the years that the people who preach law, you know, I could give you specifics. I'm not gonna take time to do it and I don't wanna single out anybody, but I've had people attack me and criticize me for preaching on the grace of God and I've seen these people over the years come under their own judgment. They come under guilt and condemnation because I guarantee you they fail. The people who are preaching holy, the holiness the most fail. Nobody lives 100% holy. Jesus is the only person that did that and people who preach that you've got to be holy and you've got to do it all right, they are gonna come under their own guilt and condemnation that they've preached. And I've seen many people who were proclaiming these things, come under guilt and condemnation and fall by the wayside and go out of the ministry. 
You need to recognize this. When people are criticizing you, they are damning them on, their own self. They are destroying themselves. They're setting themselves up for nothing but failure. Man, it'll help you to have pity on them and mercy because they are going to bear their own judgment. They will come under all of this guilt and condemnation that they are proclaiming. And in the next verse, in verse 11, it says, And I, brethren, if I yet preach circumcision, why do I yet suffer uh, persecution? Then is the offense of the cross ceased. This word for offense here is the Greek word scandalon, and it's the word we get scandal from. Did you know if you preach the gospel, it's scandalous to people that don't understand the gospel. They think, what are you saying? You're giving people a license to sin. And I tell them, man, people are doing pretty good without a license, amen. <laughs> I'm not licensing anybody to sin. I'm not telling you to go sin. I'm setting you free from sin from the guilt and the penalty. And when you are out from under the law is when you actually begin to start living a holier life. The law will make the sin that's in your heart, it will make it have dominion over you. In verse uh, 12, I would that they were even cut off, which trouble you. You know, this morning I was using this phrase out of Exodus chapter 31, verse 14 in 2 Chronicles 32 that the word cut off means to kill. And I've read some scholars about this, some of the commentaries, and they say Paul certainly wasn't saying that he wished these people were dead who were troubling him. I don't know. Maybe he wasn't meaning that, but I can tell you this wasn't good. Whatever he was meaning here, it's not good. And he said over in the first chapter, if anybody, even an angel preaches anything else to you than that which we've preached, let him be accursed. That means damned forever. That's pretty strong. I don't know for sure what he's saying, but it's not good. Paul would not tolerate people who would pervert the gospel and try and change it. And look at this in verse 13. Now he's made all of these points. And if you've tracked with Paul through all of this, now Paul is beginning to give you the flip side of this coin. If all of this is true and if God isn't imputing our sin unto us and we've got this new covenant where Jesus has already paid for everything, can we just go live in sin? Look at what he says right here. He says, for brethren, you have been called unto liberty, only use not liberty for an occasion to the flesh, but by love serve one another. Now he's beginning to say, now you've got all of this liberty, but don't take this liberty and go out and live in sin. Don't live an ungodly life, but through love, serve one another. If you were to turn over to Romans chapter 13, verses eight through 10, it talks about that love is the fulfilling of the law. Have you got that scripture, Ryan? Uh, Romans chapter 13, verse eight. It, there's a lot of scriptures, James also, but over here in Romans 13, 8, O no man anything but to love one another, for he that loveth another hath fulfilled the law. And the next verse. For this thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not bear false witness, thou shalt not covet, and if there be any other commandment, it is briefly comprehended in this saying, namely, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. That's a quotation from Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. 
The whole law is summed up in love. If you love a person, you'll never commit adultery against them. You would never do that. You would never steal. You would never lie to a person. You would never do any of these things. If you loved other people more than you loved yourself, you would bless people and you would wind up fulfilling the law through love. For you to commit sin, you've got to get out of love. Man, those are strong statements. And so he's saying, don't use this liberty as an occasion to your flesh. I need to say this because the NIV and some of the other translations say the sin nature. You don't have a sin nature once you get born again. This is violating a lot of religious tradition. I've got a whole teaching on this in Romans chapter six and I'm not gonna take time to do it, but you don't have a sin nature. Your sin nature was taken, it's crucified, it's gone, it's dead. And some people think, well, man, I've got a sin nature. I just got this drawing towards stuff. It's not your nature anymore. It's the mind that was programmed by this nature that you haven't renewed. And this is the reason the Bible says in Romans 12 too, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Your heart's been changed. If you were truly born again, you got a different nature. You now have a righteous nature, but your life will go the way of your dominant thought. Proverbs chapter 23, verse seven says, for as he thinketh in his heart, so is he. The way you think in your heart is the way your life goes. And if you haven't renewed your mind, if you still see yourself as an old sinner saved by grace, then you are gonna continue to go and, and have all of these lusts and things. But you can renew yourself. It's inaccurate to say, uh, don't give occasion to the sinful nature. It's not the sinful nature, it's the unrenewed mind that the Bible calls the flesh that is the problem. And don't give occasion to your flesh. Don't go back to that old way of thinking, but through love, that's the new covenant, grace. Through love, serve one another. In the next verse, verse 14, he says, for all the law is fulfilled in one word. Excuse me, I've already read that, but that's a great verse. For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even in this, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Verse 15, but if you bite and devour one another, take heed that you be not consumed one of another. Now see, God's not judging us for our sin. He's not imputing our sins unto us. Man, Creflo made a great point of that last night. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not, in no circumstances, under no conditions, will he ever impute sin unto you. God is not gonna hold sin against you. He forgave you of all sin, past, present, and future. God has forgiven you of sin. Does this mean that you're free to just go do whatever? If you don't walk in love, you're gonna wind up biting and devouring one another and you're gonna be consumed one of another. It's not that God's punishing you, it's just that you have thrown the door open to the devil. You know, in our society, we were, we were birthed on Christian principles. Today, we're trying to be told that that's not so, and they're trying to go back and rewrite history. But you study history. I've just had David Barton on the second time on our program, and I tell you, America was founded on godly Christian principles. I took a tour of the White House last, I think May it was, with David Barton, and there are hundreds of statues in the Capitol of preachers 
who were congressmen and senators and people who founded this nation and there's godly things everywhere. All of the pictures in the Capitol are depicting when the pilgrims knelt and dedicated this nation to God. We aren't being told the truth, but it doesn't change the truth. The truth is that this was founded as a Christian nation and because of that, this nation flourished. Now we are in the process of abandoning every Christian principle. And we are embracing things that God said are expressly wrong. We've taken away personal responsibility. We're just giving thing, people things when the scripture clearly says, if you don't work, don't eat. It ties help to a person, to their ability to do something. We're abandoning all of this stuff. And because of it, we're biting and devouring one another. There is not restraint. You know, we had the shootings at Columbine High School in uh, the Denver area back in, when was that, 2099? And they, you know, when this happened, and since that time, we've had the thing in Connecticut and other shootings and stuff, and so people want to start having metal detectors and more gun control and all of this kind of stuff. And in our local newspaper, a guy wrote in who was really, he was like 80, 90 years old at the time he wrote this thing back in 99. And he said, I grew up in the country and every kid that went to school had a gun. We, we brought them to school. That's the way that they lived. They had to have them to be able to, you know, to protect themselves and, and to shoot game and eat and do things like that. He said, every kid in school had a gun and we never had a shooting. He said, guns aren't the problem. It's the fact that we have taken God out. We no longer have the morals. We no longer have these principles. And it's because we aren't walking in what the word of God says. We aren't loving each other. In our society, it's all the me generation. It's all about me. It's all about myself. And if I'm upset with you, well, then that is justification for me going out and killing people. And we've lost the Christian principles and because of it, America's in the process of imploding. And I believe that, praise God, I'm doing what I can. Uh, other people are doing things and I believe that I'm hopeful about America that we can turn it around. But I'm saying that this is exactly what this is talking about. You've been called unto liberty. God's not gonna judge you, but does that mean that you should use your liberty to just go indulge your flesh and to be selfish and to... Think about yourself and put yourself ahead of other people? Absolutely not. If you do that, you are gonna bite and devour one another and you'll be consumed of each other. And it's happening. I tell you, this, this is a great balance to everything he's been saying. God's not gonna impute sin unto me, but you know what? You need to live a holy life, not in order to get God to love you, but as a byproduct of God loving you because he's changed your heart. You know, I'm really glad that God called me to preach the gospel because there's people who criticize it and say, well, the reason you preach the gospel is so you can go live in sin. I know one guy who's a homosexual who preaches grace. And one of the criticisms is that, well, the man, you just use this grace so that you can go uh, live in sin and stuff like that. People can't accuse me of that. I've lived holier accidentally than most of you have ever lived on purpose before. <laughs> I've lived a super holy life. 
And you can't sit here and criticize and say, well, man, you grace preachers are just going and living in sin. I'm living holier than you do. I spend more time studying the word than most of you do. I pray more than most of you. I would never say those things naturally. It doesn't matter to God. He loves me because of Jesus, not because of what I do. But I'm saying if you're going to sit here and start saying that grace causes you to go live in sin, you can't point at me and say that. It's not true. And this is the exact reasoning that Paul used over in Philippians chapter three. He says, those of you that trust in the flesh, well, I could trust in my flesh. Are you a Jew? So am I. I'm more than a Jew. I'm a Pharisee. And he started listing all of these things. And he says, but all of these things that I counted, you know, as being something at one time, I now count them like done, nothing so that I may win Christ. I'm telling you, grace doesn't set you free. These verses are Paul right here saying, don't use this liberty to indulge your flesh, but instead walk in love, walk in this new covenant. You know, it's like God uh, and, and love and joy and peace and all of these things are in this direction and anger and bitterness and depression and sickness and disease and everything else is in this direction. You can't go in both of these directions at one time. If you are seeking love and if you are focused on what God has done for you and thinking about all of these good things, you cannot live in adultery. You cannot live in strife and anger and bitterness. You cannot be depressed, focused on the good things of God. It doesn't work that way. Man, these are awesome, awesome statements. And so he said this in verse uh, 16, but this I say then, walk in the spirit and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Let me tell you what he did not say there. He did not say, if you'll quit walking in the flesh, then you'll be in the spirit. This is the way that religion is preaching it. Religion is saying, you've got this sin, this sin, this sin. Until you get over this sin, until you quit doing this, until you quit doing that, God will not answer your prayer. God will not set you free. I had some people come to me tonight who were told that until they quit smoking, God wouldn't heal them. And you know, again, I'm not for smoking. I've never smoked a cigarette. I don't believe you go to hell for smoking a cigarette. Like I said the other night, you'll smell like you've been there, but you don't go to hell for smoking a cigarette. It's not good for you. It's not the right thing to do. You shouldn't do it, but man, that's wrong to sit there and tell people if, if you've got this sin, if you've got this sin, God won't answer your prayers. God won't move in your life. But that's what the church is doing. The reason God hadn't answered your prayers because you hadn't fasted enough. You hadn't prayed enough. You hadn't gone to church. You hadn't paid your tithes. And basically what they're saying is you quit walking in the flesh before you can get into the spirit. But this says just the opposite. Walk in the spirit and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. It's like when you come into a room like this, you don't shovel the darkness out and then the light comes. You turn on the light and it drives the darkness out. And yet religion will always focus on you and tell you, you clean up your act and then God will do this. It's just the opposite. Jesus comes and sheds his light and you walk into the freedom of this new covenant. You start receiving from God by grace and that drives darkness out of you. 
If you could start understanding how much God loves you, it will break the dominion of sin. Keep your finger right here, but let me turn over to Romans chapter, I think it's Romans chapter six. I can find this verse. And in verse 14, it says, for sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under the law, but under grace. If you are under the law, sin will have dominion over you. Grace sets you free from it. Once you receive the light of God's love and grace and you start fellowshipping with him, that breaks the dominion of sin. Again, it's like that thing I was talking about. If you are over here focused on God's love and heading in this direction, focused on all of the goodness of God, you can't turn to the darkness. You can't walk in the spirit and the flesh at the same time. If you are in the flesh, if you are living in adultery, if you are a doper, a drunk, if you're a liar, a thief, if you're depressed or whatever it is over here that's in the darkness, I can guarantee you, you are not focused on the light and all of the things that God has done. You aren't walking in the spirit. You walk in the spirit, you cannot do these other things. You know, I had a friend of mine who was a pastor of a church and he wound up committing adultery on his wife and he fell into a sexual addiction and he would go months without doing anything and then he'd go on a binge and have two or three prostitutes in one day. And anyway, he repented of that and came back around. I was talking to him and he, he helped me to minister to some other people. And I was talking to him one time and I said, I just don't understand this. I cannot understand how you as a minister, he had seen people healed he had seen blind eyes open, people come out of wheelchairs, the power of God had flown through him. And I said, I just do not understand how you could do what you did. And I was talking to him and uh, I, I made this statement. I said, man, if I was to even approach something like that, I would just be smitten thinking about, you know, like Creflo was saying, that God will never leave you nor forsake you. God is going with you. And I would be sitting here thinking about, look what I'm dragging God into. How could I do this to God? And I said, how could you think about the Lord and what God was thinking as you were committing these sexual acts? And he made a statement to me that was really revealing. And he says, when I did those things, it's like I would get into this zone. I had blinders on and I never thought of God. He says, I, it's like I just pushed God out of my mind. He says, if I would have one time thought about what I was doing in relationship to God and the love of God, he said, I couldn't have done it. And that was really revealing to me. But you know what? There's people that they can go through an entire day or a week and never think about God and never think about their relationship with the Lord and never think about the goodness of God and not think about that God is with them. That's a dangerous place to be. You need to be walking in the spirit. That doesn't mean that you got your collar turned around backwards and that you go around with your hands folded. But the Bible says in John 6, 63, the words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. Walking in the Spirit is walking in the Word, walking in this revelation of your new covenant. And if you are focused on that and thinking on the things of God, you'll never be tempted with adultery. You'll never be tempted with lying, stealing, and perversion. The light, you walk in the Spirit and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. I can guarantee you that's how you break it is not by trying to clean yourself up and then when you get free, 
on your own, by yourself, then God will accept you. If you could get free on your own, you wouldn't need God. You can't get free on your own. You just need to humble yourself and receive this new covenant of grace and walk in the spirit, walk in the revelation of it. And then that will break the dominion of the flesh over you. And the next few verses verify this. In verse 17, for the flesh lust against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary the one to the other so that you cannot do the things that you would. You cannot walk in the spirit and fulfill the lust of the flesh. It can't happen. They are opposites. They're in opposite directions. I can't go that direction and this direction at the same time. Likewise, you can't walk in the flesh and indulge all of your things and just do what you want to and be walking in this new covenant. It's a hindrance to you. God's gonna love you. He'll never withdraw from you. He'll never impute that sin unto you, but you harden your own heart towards God when you live in sin. When you go out and indulge your flesh, you are cutting yourself off. You are, it's like God standing over there and you turn your back on him to head that direction. So sin is stupid. Quit living in sin. Creflo wasn't even here to hear that. But sin's stupid, just quit doing it. But when you do it, recognize that God still loves you. He's not upset at you. And if you understood that, it'll break the dominion of, this, uh, of the law over you. In verse 18, but if you be led of the spirit, you are not under the law. Led of the spirit again, isn't all of these religious mannerisms and weird things that we talk about. It's just walking in the revelation of his covenant, understanding the gospel, the grace of God, this new covenant. And if you are walking in that, you are not under the law. Which part of you are not under the law do we not understand? Man, that's just about as simple as you can make it. And then it lists all of the works of the flesh, an unrenewed mind. And it talks about uh, adultery, fornication. If you are doing those things, you are headed in this direction and you are cutting yourself off from God. It's not God who's cut you off. It's you that cuts yourself off from God. You are carnally minded. And the Bible says in Romans 8 that that is death. To be carnally minded is death. Romans 8, 6. And so you can't live in adultery and have the revelation and the love and the joy and the peace of God flowing through you because you're moving in a direction that you are hardening your heart towards God. That's the reason you don't live in sin, not because God's gonna reject you, you are rejecting God. And you know, for time's sake, I'm, I am gonna finish this chapter. Let me just not read every one of these, but they're all bad. Don't do any of this stuff that it's talking about right here. And then in verse 22, it says, but the fruit of the spirit is love. And it lists nine things. The fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, long suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, and temperance. Against such, there is no law. There's no law against you walking in love towards people and loving people as God loved you. There's no law against joy. There's no law against peace. 
If you are walking in the peace of God, there's nothing against that. Long-suffering, gentleness to each other, kindness, faith, meekness, temperance, there is no law against that. If you are following the Spirit and walking in the new covenant and rejoicing in that, there's nothing that is, you'll never violate it. Anytime you go out and sin and do something wrong, it's because you quit listening to the grace of God, focusing on that, flowing in what God's Holy Spirit is leading you to do, and you've started leaning under your own understanding. Man, this is powerful. I wished I had time, I wished I had the words to put this into context, but I have so many people come to me that just feel so inadequate to overcome, and it's because they are trying in the flesh to overcome these things instead of just stepping into what Jesus has done, basking in that, receiving the love. And if you would receive that love of God, it would just cleanse you. It would make you start living a godly, holy life. Man, those are awesome, awesome things. And they that are Christ have crucified the flesh with the affections and lust. Man, I could preach on that an hour. Most people are trying to die to themselves. Romans chapter six says you've already been crucified. You are dead and now risen with Christ. Your spirit is already separated from all sin and ungodliness. Your spirit's already holy and pure. And if you would just walk in who you are in the spirit, you would not fulfill the lust of the flesh. You've already crucified the flesh with the affections and lust thereof. You just need to renew your mind to it. If you live in the spirit, that's talking about it's already done. In the spirit, it's already done. You already have crucified it. Then... Let us also walk in the Spirit. These things are already realities on the inside. You're already totally grown. You're a, a mature Christian on the inside, but you don't know it yet. You haven't renewed our mind. We need to walk in it. We need to renew our mind and begin to act on these things. In verse 26, let us not be desirous of vain glory, provoking one another, envying one another. All of those things were listed as works of the flesh. Man, this is awesome. If you've understood what we've been talking about this weekend, you know, Jesus has done everything for us. He's totally set us free. He's not imputing your sin unto you. You have been totally, completely delivered. One third of your salvation is over. Your spirit is perfect and pure and is in right standing with God as it will ever be. The only thing left to do is renew your mind to it. Change the way you think. Start walking in this new covenant. Walk in the spirit and you will break the dominion of the flesh over you. Sickness and disease and poverty will be gone. Depression and anger and worry and care and fear will be gone. If we would just understand this new covenant, God has already done everything for us. And all we have to do is just appropriate it by renewing our minds and believing the good news. Just believe it and thank God for it. Amen. You are free. Praise God for Jesus. Hallelujah. So man, I pray that the Holy Spirit is gonna bring back to your remembrance these things that we've talked about because this is the gospel. I think that the book of Galatians is one of Paul's strongest ministries out of any
passage he ever wrote. I mean, it's just powerful. If you didn't get this, uh, you just have trouble understanding the gospel because this has been super, super clear. You know, again tonight, I want to give an opportunity if there's anybody here who doesn't know Jesus. Man, it'd be a shame to hear that. We hope your heart has been quickened by hearing the Word of God through this message. It's the faithful support of people like you who make this ministry possible. We invite you to prayerfully consider becoming a partner with Andrew Womack Ministries. We maintain a website at awmi.net. Our helpline number is 719-635-1111, or you can write us at P.O. Box 3333, Colorado Springs, Colorado, 80934. Until next time, we pray that you'll reach out by faith and receive everything that's yours through God's grace.